Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Greetings and thanks for joining us for another episode of A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, your host today and the editor of the War Room podcast and also a professor of strategy here at the U.S. Army War College. On today's program, we're going to explore how places outside of the United States are covered or not in the American media and what the implications are for policy. The question is essentially, why do we hear more about some places and events than others? My guest today is Dr. Amanda Cronkite, who is an expert in media and communications. She earned a PhD in political science from the University of Illinois and is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so if we turned on the news right now, it's the middle, sort of the middle of the day, uh, or NPR or major network news or cable news and we paid attention to the international news portion of that uh, broadcast, what places and topics would we be most likely to hear about? So there are a couple things that kind of guide what makes news. The first rule is, is it new? Is there a big event? Obviously, you're going to hear about an earthquake, a plane crash. Those are rare events. They're big. So those tend to, to, to take over news cycles. But even then, you're more likely to hear about a plane crash in a country that the U.S. has some affinity or or relationship with. So a plane crash in Britain would undoubtedly lead the news for multiple days. A plane crash in Angola would be mentioned, and then the newscaster would move on. The, The news itself would happen, but an earthquake in Italy, a, four, a 4.0 in, in Italy or in California, is going to get more coverage than an 8.0 in the Sahara. Both because people know where Italy is, Americans travel to Italy, there might be Americans impacted, and also because there's a lot of reporters in Rome, because it's the Vatican. So Rome tends to be a place where, where news outlets have reporters. It makes sense if you draw an analogy to the U.S. Where does BBC have its reporters here? New York, Washington, maybe Chicago, Miami, or L.A. So for U.K. viewers in the U.S., a story about New York is more likely to be shown in the U.K. than a story about Kansas. Okay. Um, So you you sort of answered this, but what places are we very unlikely to hear about? So I was able to look at... I have... I had access to 60 years of geocoded data from the New York Times. So the New York Times, it's called the Gray Lady. It is certainly the U.S.'s paper of record. And the University of Illinois' Klein Center was a, worked with the New York Times. They got 60 years of geocoded data. What that means is every place that was mentioned was accounted for. So if there was a story in Angola, I have a data point for it. Okay. That's aggregated up over 60 years systematically. So we can look over this whole period of time, so the whole Cold War, Vietnam, the recession, it go, the data ends in 2005. 
we can see that Europe is by far the most likely to be covered. That makes sense. The U.S. and the U.K. have the special relationship, right? We also pay more attention to Mexico than we do to the rest of Latin America. Again, that's a border country. That makes sense. So places that are either geographically or culturally proximate get covered more. What does culturally proximate mean? Well, in Australia, and people speak English, we're more familiar with Australia than we are even with New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So Australia shows so up they more they speak than, English there too. They do. But we're more familiar with Australia. <laughs> and again, Americans are more likely to go to Australia than New Zealand. So even then, when I don't think most Americans would make a big distinction culturally sure. between Australia and New Zealand, we hear more about Australia. Okay. And I would imagine that's true even in even within Europe that we hear maybe more about Britain than we do about France or even Germany, um, even though some of the geopolitical or, or economic ties may be stronger in, in the latter cases. Yeah, the uh, the two top countries in the data set were the outside the U.S. were the U.K. and France. Canada was third, and Russia was fourth. Now, again, this data was through the Cold War. We don't consider ourselves culturally proximate to Russia, but a big enemy is just as likely to get coverage as a big mm-hmm. friend is. Um, but it's also because we, that's where we had things going on. You know, we were concerned about that. So I think this is this gets us to a, a sort of second question, which is, um, yeah, actually, are there? What are, do you have the lowest ranked places? Like I what places? Do. So. In 60 years of New York Times coverage, uh, Eritrea was mentioned 721 times. Now, okay, you, but it's right. It's not. I mean, does that include mentions of Eritrea before Eritrea was a country? Yes. Okay. It accounts for right because like yes. the geopolitics yeah, no, change it, over time. The data set accounts for it's by latitude and longitude. Okay. And then it's aggregated up. So Eritrea was mentioned 721 times. The, the, the location that is now Eritrea. But the data set overall has 6.8 million mentions of places outside of the U.S. So out of 6.8 million times, Eritrea, Bahrain, Burundi, Gambia, Qatar, Moldova were all mentioned very, very few. That's so that I mean that's almost nothing. If you were to visualize that, um, these wouldn't even sort of register. Bhutan was mentioned. Yeah, Bhutan. The, the the geography that is now Bhutan, eighty six times over sixty years out of over six million data points, which means we don't talk or think about Bhutan very much. I that's just that's mind boggling um, to me. I thought seven hundred and twenty one was low, and then come up with an uh, even Djibouti, lower 190, 166 for Djibouti. So overwhelmingly, if we look at the bottom 20 foreign countries, the least, they're mostly in Africa. Um, we, the, we don't have military bases there. We didn't have Africa really, when we think about the Cold War, we think about Europe. We didn't have, we don't have a lot of economic ties. Like Canada, we have a massively integrated economy Mm -hmm. well so there's not an economic reason to cover it It, we don't have former colonies there 
I mean, former colonial ties is, is actually yeah. a big. I would imagine for if coverage. you did if you ran the same thing in in say France, you would have very different results even for Francophone Africa yeah. than you would for absolutely. Le Mans coverage, Le Mans should cover more Francophone Africa than, for example, Dutch Africa. Okay. So for the U.S. coverage, we systematically don't. This data shows that we systematically don't look at South Asia and Africa. And there's there's something skewing the data. So East Asia Pacific gets a decent amount of coverage, but that's largely skewed if you disaggregate the data by the Vietnam War. Okay. So it spikes up and then it goes down. And then East the East Asia Pacific data uh, since then has mostly been about China. So you have these outliers. Even within Europe, the UK skews the data. Okay. So the UK looms large. Um, Moldova... Obviously, less also so. part of Europe, less so. Yes. Uh, so even regionally, you've got big disparities. And you already said that um, Mexico gets more coverage than other places yes. in, in Latin America. And since you mentioned Moldova, 258 <laughs> times, the sixth least con- covered country. Okay. I mean, this is this is this is totally fascinating. I like want a chart. I want visualizations of this. Um, so we've got a couple of reasons that you've already mentioned. And I want to talk a little bit more in depth about those. So you have... Uh, proximity and you said sort of geography culture language can all or affinity uh, can all lend to lend to that um the second one that we've talked about is the sort of the coverage of rare and unlikely events um when you put that together with the proximity and affinity question is it that would seem like it's true that a catastrophe in a place where there's cultural affinity is going to get more coverage than not. So if you look at um, the coverage of, say, tsunamis or natural disasters, do we see disparities in coverage there? Absolutely. So if we think about why countries get covered, so or why an event gets covered, so something is different or attention-gating, you have this kind of cultural geographic proximity. If the people are familiar with the names or places, that helps. But there's also if Americans are affected that helps. Um, if it's dramatic, if and frankly, if we have pictures or film of it, there's really an additive effect to all these th- to all these items that kind of constitute how newsworthy something is. So the example I like using uh, from the Syrian conflict from two or three years ago, people weren't thinking about Syria, they weren't thinking about Syria, and then within a couple months of each other, there were two very dramatic photos. One of a drowned boy on a beach, and one of a boy who was covered in, in, in rubble and ash, mm-hmm. seated in an ambulance. In both of those cases, there was a dramatic picture. But also, it was a very identifiable story. There was a familiarity to, or we could feel the plight of children. You, didn't, you don't have to understand the Syrian conflict to, to be affected by a boy sitting covered in ash right. against, against I actually remember it was a very dramatic orange backdrop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that emotional affect is in some ways stronger than any geopolitical conversation in which the, the rabbit holes and the complexities that you go down within 30 seconds of starting to think about that conflict, it's hard to come out of. Um, but those images are really sticky and they're... So there was an image, there was... Uh, a situation of any any parent, any person can feel for that child. And since they occurred in relative 
temporal proximity to each other, there was a Syria suddenly became more newsworthy. So this kind of additive effect. So if there's a plane crash and if it's in a country where that we have some relationship with and if there's Americans on board and if there's art, all those different mm-hmm. items add up to something being more newsworthy. Okay, so any one thing might not sort of tip the balance, but you could have a number of different sort of variables or effects at play. Um, and you've also mentioned, and I want to, let's dig into this a little bit more, there are also structural reasons uh, for coverage. And you've mentioned sort of where bureaus are, are located. Can you tell us more about that and how the news media sort of operates? Well, I think any industry where you have, let's say, It's forward positioning is what it is. So where do you invest the time to have your reporter? So for most places, for most countries, they're going to want to have someone in the U.S. Well, is the person in D.C. or in New York? If the country has a financial relationship with us, they're probably in New York. If it's a political relationship, they're probably in D.C. Same thing with us. Same thing in this case for the New York Times. So the New York Times had bureaus in London, in Paris, in uh, Brussels, because NATO's there. So in Moscow, Cold War, that made sense. It didn't necessarily make sense to have a reporter full-time in Ukraine. So what that means, though, is when something happens, you might have a relationship, a contract relationship with a reporter there. You Mm -hmm. might have a relationship where kind of similar to airlines where you can fly on their code partners. You might have a relationship with another news organization that has a reporter there. If not, you've got to get a person there. So all of this is forward positioning. On the continent of Africa, if an international news entity has a bureau, if, it's probably in Johannesburg or Cape Town. Um, Maybe if they have two, the second one is in Egypt. So over time, we just see that that means, again, those reporters are in, let's use South Africa. They're in South Africa. We're hearing about South Africa. That makes sense. That's our trading partner. Um, But it also means that that's what the reporter is thinking about. That's what they're hearing about. Maybe they have the budget twice a year to go to some more, more to interior countries. Mm -hmm. In Latin America, where, where are the Times reporters stationed? Well, Mexico City, that's obvious. If there's a second one, it's probably Sao Paulo. Again, big uh, Brazil is Latin America's largest country, and Sao Paulo is its business center. That makes sense. There's also direct flights from both of those cities. So if someone has to get to Panama, they can, but that implies time. So if there's a disaster on the Panama Canal, for example, certainly something the U.S. would be interested in from a national security perspective, from an economic perspective, we would probably be dependent on contractors who are closer there. Maybe there's somebody in Costa Rica. Maybe there's somebody who happens to be in Panama City who can cover it. If not, what we find out is going to be limited by what's, when someone can get there. And the okay. example of this that I always use is was the terrorist attack in Paris a few years ago. Most news organizations, for, for purely monetary reasons, had closed their Paris bureaus. London is very close. So when the terrorist attack happened, multiple news organizations didn't have anyone on the ground. And it was, a, it was late night. People couldn't get there till morning. So I remember hearing a U.S. news organization who happened to have a relationship with Sky News in Asia and was able to get their person in Paris on the phone. 
well, here's this massive attack in a place where we know millions of Americans travel every year in our oldest ally. France is our oldest ally. Right. And there was no new, n- U.S. news organizations there didn't have anyone there. So this is, this is a place where there's the sort of – there is affinity. There's a rare event that happens. Um, and the and the structural barriers are really what's preventing that news from from reaching. But we also have the the sort of need for constant news and breaking news, and so the reliance on whoever's on the ground. And I would imagine the reliance on right images from cell phones and cell phone videos and and the the sort of crowdsourced type of reporting that we often see in in coverage of breaking stories is is that often a gap of getting someone there? Certainly recently it has been. Um, but if there was a gap, and it was only eight, ten hours, let's say, in Paris, because this happened this happened very late. But there's a gap in Paris. Um, think back to the tsunami in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. That was a gap of days before people could get there. And it's a natural disaster. Like, the infrastructure is, yes, exactly. is destroyed. Like, it's things gone. are not working right paris continued to function yes even in the wake of of this attack and so you you it becomes even more complicated with natural disasters and these sort of large-scale catastrophic events but if it had been a terrorist attack at a resort which we've also also Mm -hmm. seen for example a few years ago in bali you would still it would still be that much harder to get someone there so what we know is limited by what gets out who's on the ground and let's be honest, if you're managing a terror, if you're the poor police spokesperson and you're just trying to look at this as a law enforcement thing, if someone's not asking you, were there any fatalities from the U.S., were there any fatalities from France, you're probably not thinking about it. You're looking at this from a law enforcement perspective, just trying to figure out how many fatalities there are. So what is the news? So what we care about in the U.S. as the U.S. public we might not be able to get that answer. Hmm. So what do you think are the implications of all of this um, and this really wide disparity that you talked about in coverage? Um, and again, it's over time. It's obviously going to spike um, if there's a specific reason to pay attention for some to, to something. But what are the long-term implications uh, for strategists and for policymakers in the national security realm, do you think? Well, Cognitive scientists will tell you that you something you think about something bec- or you care about something because of frequency and recency. So either you just heard about something so it's on your mind or you think about it regularly so you think about it. Well, if Moldova is never in the news, I doubt many policymakers are really thinking about Moldova. That's fine. Probably not likely to have a major terrorist or major banking event come out of there. However, India, the world's largest democracy, pretty un you know pretty dangerous neighborhood long-term conflict but we just don't hear about it much so if there's no one if there's no u.s based reporters in new delhi because i know that that's one place where a lot of um we don't you know the brits still have a bureau there but bbc does but we don't the new york times doesn't um then suddenly something's you know tensions in Kashmir might be mounting up and mm-hmm. maybe the military is paying attention to it maybe one or two people are but policymakers aren't hearing about it and then suddenly there's a heaven forbid something awful happen in the world's largest democracy um we rely on pakistan for for help with afghanistan and it just wasn't on our radar so this is how you end up with gaps this is how people t- you know forget that countries exist 
or you have you only hear about a country when something really bad happens. And that can reinforce a stereotype, particularly about developing countries. If you only hear about Namibia when something really exceptional, really good, or really, really bad mm -hmm. happens, and more likely really, really bad, you might start to just think about that country as associated with disease or with a plane crash. And that's going to reinforce stereotypes about different parts of the world and different peoples that are incorrect. Right. So I think this is where we get to within within an American context. And recently, we've had a couple of instances of this sort of stereotyping of in, an entire continent in in one instance uh, with some pretty sort of crude language, right, which we, we won't repeat on the on the podcast, but um, that associates uh, the entire con continent of Africa um, with sort of undesirable qualities, uh, even though the that may not reflect the sort of day-to-day -day reality, it wouldn't reflect the sort of positive um, stories that we might associate with more local, uh, more consistent reporting. Um, and it's not just Africa. If you think about, if you ask people about Colombia, most of people in the U.S. still think cocaine, even though Colombia's drug drug war, their big one was in the 80s. Right. That's what that's the stories that came out of there. Bogota is a wonderful city. It's a great place to visit. But most people, if you ask them about that, that's the image formed in their head. Mexico is approximately the same geography size wise as Europe. But people in the US think, oh, Mexico, drugs, dangerous. It's all dangerous. Can't go to Acapulco. Because the US press pays attention when an American, one American gets mugged, as opposed to, and they have no incentive. Why? Why would the U.S. press be reporting on, on, um, some kind of increasing development in Acapulco? It's not. Right. It's not something. It doesn't hit any. It doesn't of the, hit any, any of, the, of the newsworthiness yes. that we talked about earlier. So you have all of these sort of biases and heuristics that we talk about a lot in critical thinking and in strategic thinking whether that's availability or recency, uh, all of that is sort of coming into play. Um, and it also strikes me that there's an interesting question here about um, the relationship between what policymakers know and think about and hear about. And we, th we, I think people maybe tend to think that they're getting lots of inside information from intelligence agencies and from other, other places, but people are still reading the news and listening to news coverage. And so the things that you think about in a, on a daily basis are maybe just as important as any uh, classified report that somebody might see um, in order when they're making these sort of policy decisions and strategic level decisions. Well, I think about it in some ways from an appropriation standpoint. So hopefully whoever is on uh, the staffer or the desk officer who's covering these countries absolutely is reading more than the New York Times. Sure. Hopefully they're reading the local paper. But when they're feeding stories up, their bosses, bosses, bosses don't have time to read everything. So their bosses, bosses, bosses might be asking, hey, I saw this in the New York Times. Tell me what's going on with that. Mm -hmm. So if in a place where, in a time or in a job where everyone has too much to do, not enough time, and too many competing demands, these kind of heuristics at the senior leader are still going to have an are still going to be right. important, and it's figuring out um, in part that the sort of mushy middle 
Um, so I'd be, it would be interesting to see this sort of, and maybe you have more numbers at the ready. Um, <laughs> so we know that we know the places that we care about a lot. Um, we can imagine and guess the places that we don't hear about maybe really at all. Um, but there's a, there's a vast middle that we might need to hear about in certain circumstances. Um, and it seems like we've got to figure out some ways to, to manage that information flow. Well, I think about it this way. The tri-border area in South America, we've known it's been dangerous for decades. You need to find what that is for... Um, so, Ciudad del Este in Paraguay. So where Brazil and Paraguay and Argentina meet? It's called the tri-border area because it's it's in some ways, it's it's the Wild West. It's a very lawless area. Um, it's been, Ciudad del Este has been known for decades to be a hub for drugs and human trafficking and guns and all kinds of bad things. It's also a, a big commercial area for, for Paraguay especially. There is a whole, a massive amount of legitimate commerce that goes through there as well. But it's on the border. It's in the middle of the jungle. You're not going to station a reporter mm-hmm. there. You're going to have your reporter be in Sao Paulo, probably. Probably not even in Paraguay. So when something happens there, maybe that reporter who's in Sao Paulo goes to Ciudad del Este once or twice a year because they know it's important. But then that that coverage, again, we're really interested in human trafficking. We're really interested in knowing what's going on there. But it's not necessarily, there's no guarantee it's going to make it into the news. There's no guarantee that a mind-blowing important story might be ready for publish the same day that there's some event that... And we can't, if there's going to be, if there's a plane crash, it doesn't matter what else you were going to run that day. So we're not hearing about it. These are topics we care about. This is a place we know is dangerous, but there are structural reasons why we're not, you know, we're not necessarily hearing about it. I thought when the movie Spotlight won the best best picture a few years ago, it showed how, how long it takes to really pay attention to a difficult story. And even then, the Boston Globe had to sit on it because 9-11 happened. Right. Because here's this massively important story. They didn't want it to get lost in, lost in the chaos. So that we, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what's going on. And even if you care about human trafficking, you might not be thinking, oh, you know, I really should see what's going on in Ciudad del Este. It's just not something sure. that's necessarily on our radar. All right. So what's the what's the remedy? Oh, I wish I had one. Realistically, newsworthiness is a product of what we care about. If you have family in Denmark, you're probably paying attention to Denmark. Same as if you have family in Paraguay. If you're when my brother was deployed to Cuba, my parents started suddenly started paying more attention to Guantanamo. So but and that's fine if for those who are interested. For those of us who aren't, I would say it's really more about checking your stereotypes. You know, as a general rule, whole countries, whole continents aren't bad. Um, Not everyone in Colombia is a drug lord. If you have the ability to read a local news source, that's always better. So, you know, if you're really interested in Australia, maybe check out their newspaper. If you read French, you should be reading Le Monde. But at least be aware that, you know, the fact that I only hear about Crimea when things are really bad doesn't mean it ceases to exist. Mm. 
Great. I think that's fantastic advice uh, for folks at, at all levels, uh, from the generally interested all the way up through uh, the sort of more senior ranks of U.S. military and government. So, Amanda, thanks so much for your time today, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Happy to be here. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.